1: Rushed Grenfell demolition plans spark fury over lack of consultation. Architect of London's new wave of social housing, Peter Barber, fated for lifetime achievement. Heated debates ignited over fresh wave of iconic London demolitions and retrofits. And why ABBA's virtual comeback could be big news for architecture. My name is Zoe Cave, I work for Open City and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My special guest this week is Sean Adams. Sean is a writer, architectural designer and co-founder of Poor Collective. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Our first story this week follows an article in the Times covering the government's plans for the future of Grenfell Tower, which provoked a response from bereaved families and survivors and was later picked up in the AJ. Relatives of those who died in the Grenfell fire have accused the government of trying to demolish the tower blocks remains too hastily and without consulting them. Campaign group Grenfell United wrote in a statement that the government had spoken to fewer than 10 survivors and bereaved relatives, adding that they had been given assurances that the building poses no risk and can be kept safe for as long as it needs to be. However, the Times has reported that ministers are set to announce this month that the tower will be demolished after structural engineers unambiguously and unanimously recommended it was carefully taken down. According to the report, Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick has been told the tower poses particular risk to the Kingston Aldridge Academy, a secondary school located near the burnt-out tower. Writing in a statement, campaign group Grenfell United said that this shock announcement came without the promised consultation with the Grenfell survivors and bereaved relatives – Fewer than 10 survivors and bereaved relatives have been consulted, which, considering the wide range of viewpoints across all affected families, meant they struggled to understand why this decision was being pushed through so quickly. They also raised concern at the tower being demolished while the inquiry remains ongoing, stating that, quote, no judge in the land can confirm its demolition won't hinder future criminal proceedings. So Sean, why is this decision from the government such a big deal? Many of the Grenfell community accept that the tower will be demolished at some point. So why is this hasty move from the government proving so contentious?
2: Grenfell United have kind of expressed their desire um, to 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 kind of have an opportunity to to grieve over um over the, the the people that lost their lives, and they want to ha- feel as if they have the power over what happens to the building. And once again, in the same way, how they, they their voices were ignored, um, when they kind of raised uh, issues with the safety of the building, their, their their voices are getting ignored once again when they're when they're asking for for to have control of what happens um to the building. I mean, there's been there's been ideas of. Of creating um a, a kind of green tower and adding vegetation, and whilst structurally these ideas may not be feasible, what what is powerful about these ideas is that the residents and the Grenfell community have some say, and I think again we're just seeing um that these residents are really just being ignored, and and it, and it's really sad to see that despite everything that's happened to them, they're, they're still being marginalised.
1: Nice. And then that leads on to the, the the disenfranchisement of social housing residents is a problem that predates the fire. So, in fact, a new documentary is soon to air on Channel 4, which predates the incident, um, documenting Grenfell uh, residents trying to get their voices heard about the very renovations which place this deadly cladding on their homes. Um, And if you look even more generally, years after the tragedy, the social housing white paper still hasn't made it to law. So why is it that despite the appalling Grenfell fire, the survivors um, and also social housing residents in general are still struggling to have their voices heard?
2: What this shows you is that there's clearly social inequality and and a lot of austerity happening here. Um, And what is the kind of saddest thing is that the concerns of social housing residents really seem to, to not matter to, to a lot of people. I think the most kind of worst thing is this blame, the blaming kind of getting pushed uh, and this kind of ping pong of, of blame in, instead of the organisations involved actually admitting and, and showing where their shortcomings are. I mean, from the inquiry, I remember reading um, from the kind of early stages of the inquiry, they were, they were blaming um, the fire brigade. They were saying that it was the fire brigades' um, fault, and and in a way, it's, it's as you follow the story, you can only you can only kind of sympathize with the resident because you're hearing excuses like the fire brigade after they had continuously mentioned how they felt unsafe. If you if you think about it, um, like the council, Kensington and Chelsea, um, and and everyone involved, money was clearly the most important thing. Um, if we think about the cladding. Uh, one of the kind of reasons for the cladding was to uh, to make the building look nicer um and if you think about that what what is more important is it a building looking pretty for for people that don't live there um or is it about the building being safe is it uh, about it being a a place where people feel safe they feel secure what is more important is it is it about money or is it about human life
1: Mm. In your interpretation, why do you think it's being pushed through so quickly?
2: The one of the kind of main reasons that I think it was kind of covered, um, or the push for it to be covered and have the green heart was that um, a lot of residents or uh, the people in in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea actually didn't want to see the building, and not, and I think it's not in the in in um, in the sense that they don't want to see the building because. Of the blaze, it's the same reason why they added the color. They didn't want to see something that um, they thought was an ISIL, and I think that is incredibly troubling um, because I think if if we put aside the the, if if it wasn't like so damaging for for survivors to see the 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 burnt out building, I think it should stand as a as a reminder. So every time um, architects or 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 builders or contractors are trying to cut costs or, or su- supplying materials or cladding that um isn't properly certified they remember this because i think once the building is is gone and removed i think it's out of sight and i think this is what we're kind of seeing already is getting pushed to the back and um people are slowly forgetting about this whilst i think i think this is something that we should never forget ever
1: you are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The London and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The London is supported by Adobe, makers of software, including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit the show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discount subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as 9 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Covered in the AJ, our next story is all to do with London architect Peter Barber, a modern pioneer of high-quality contextual social housing. Barber has recently won the AJ100 Contribution to the Profession Award. Renowned and esteemed for his social housing projects, 61-year-old Peter Barber has been awarded this lifetime honour after coming top of a poll of AJ100 Practices employees, so that's people who work at the largest and most successful architecture companies in the UK. Previous winners of the award include leading architects with an international profile such as Sadie Morgan, David Chipperfield, Alison Brooks, Zaha Hadid, David Adjaye and Richard Rogers. Last year, Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara, founders of the internationally acclaimed Grafton Architects, were jointly recognised with the leading industry honour. Typically, it's an award given to high-profile architects working on big capital projects such as major public buildings and prestigious large-scale commercial developments, but set up in 1989... Barber's practice has, in contrast, built a reputation for ingenious reinventions of traditional housing types and creating beautifully crafted council homes on tough inner city sites. Uniquely, his projects have won appreciation across the political spectrum and are frequently celebrated by both modernist and traditionalist advocates on social media. Uh, Regular Lundown listeners will also remember from last week's show that Barber picked up a remarkable 4 2021 RIBA London Awards, more than any other practice this year. AJ editor Emily Booth sung Barber's praises saying quote, "He is a passionate and tireless advocate for high quality affordable housing. His distinctive designs are inventive, with a sense of delight, delivering housing that is both high density and humane. So Sean, can you describe who Peter Barber is? What are some of his convictions and principles when it comes to architecture?
2: Mr. Barber, I would say, is one of Britain's most distinguished architects. Um, I would say, over the years, he has cleverly reimagined um, housing typologies um, on quite overlooked sites. I would, I would add. But what really separates him from other architects, and I say other architects, not housing only housing architects, um, is because I think his work is really humane and holistic, and the kind of approach to design that he has really centres around the users. Um, and we always talk about architecture being for the people, but um, that is, we all know that isn't necessarily always the case. Um, I think to add to it, to kind of add to that description, I think what kind of characterises his work is it's generous, is is caring. Um, other than the fact that it looks quite impressive, I mean, the, the elegant arches, olive green details and buff brick, but the spaces that he provides, he, he clearly cares about the user. So it's not about, OK, let's take off and make sure these numbers um, are all right. But it's about how can I create um, meaningful experiences for residents and a local community?
1: When you say about like he focuses on like being generous and care, what does that what does that actually look like?
2: I think it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say what it, it looks like. I think I'd say what it does, because I think what his work does is tackle pressing issues such as homelessness, for example, in in Holmes Road or um, like the, the lack of housing provisions. Um, but whilst it does that, it does that. And the housing, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as if it's stigmatized because I think a lot of people assume that uh, social housing um, is not going to look, it's not going to look good, it's going to be, it's not going to be like architecturally beautiful, quote unquote. Um, but I think he's got a real elegance to his, to his, his buildings, and when you look at his architecture, you don't immediately think social housing because I think over the years it has developed. Um, this kind of negative stigma people kind of turn their turn their lips up to um to to social to social housing so he's not just kind of uh, looking at at the, the kind of guides that the endless amount of guides that we get um that are continuously updated but he's actually kind of holistically thinking how can i um redefine um social housing in 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 the uk
1: also the other thing is that like he he's 61 and i know like architecture loves to celebrate like new voices but he when he was coming out of um of training everyone was like so excited for big millennium domes like big museums all of those sort of like massive projects that then so then you realize that he was doing this whilst like in that post Thatcher post new labor where social housing was the pits like it was they were doing everything to like reduce and reduce and like demonize everyone who lived there it was like I saw monstrosities. And he was then at that time being like, Oh, actually no, this is well worthy of like my energy and to build a practice that like dedicates to that. So like putting him in context, he was actually like what he was doing at that time was pretty like bucking bucking that old trend.
2: I think that's what I think like super interesting about his work is like he's not only kind of um like designing and 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 kind of building building he's also proposing things i think some of the best architects um that are both dead and alive they did both they didn't only kind of just design builders they also made these kind of crazy proposals um that some people would argue that could never happen but it, it helped the architectural discourse because um who knows in 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 20, 30, 40, 50 years, someone might pick up the 100-mile city and, and actually try try and do that. <laughs> Who's to say it isn't taken to, to somewhere in the global south, for, for example? And I think um, by kind of proposing these things, you're really pushing forward the agenda and and, and bringing these kind of um, designs uh, forward and, and, and making sure that the architectural canon is actually meaningful.
1: When you look at previous winners of the award, so Zaha Hadid, David Ajay, these are people best known for huge projects with big budgets and sometimes catering for the super rich rather than the ordinary Londoners. Um, what is the significance of this prize being given to Peter Barber?
2: I think there's really a, a massive movement happening at a moment where people are starting to to really reflect on architecture, and I think we're we're kind of idolising this um kind of big bold architecture but what about the the really meaningful what about the small scale architecture that is really impactful and makes a massive difference to people's lives and I think um the fact that we're kind of now um really looking at Peter Barber's work and and giving it the accolades it, it deserves I think I think it's um it's necessary because it shows that you don't only have to be an architect that designs massive cultural buildings or kind of sprawling master plans to 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 be recognised and to to be respected. I think the work that he he does is it, whilst it's humble, it, it it's incredible.
1: Our next item relates to a string of recent stories covered by the AJ and the hyperlocal news website London SE1. Um, and they're all to do with up-and-coming demolitions and retrofits in London, a topic we have covered extensively on this show. So a flurry of stories emerged this week revealing proposed demolitions and retrofits of several iconic buildings across the capital, each sparking a heated debate over what should happen next. First up, we have an elegant Brutalist office block which is to be torn down in Walthamstow and replaced with 433 new homes and a new civic building. Originally designed by the Greater London Council Architects Department and completed in 1973, the building underwent an internal revamp in 2018 by Gort Scott, which transformed the former Magistrates Court into a temporary headquarters for Waltham Forest Council. The new designs to replace the building, recommended for approval by Waltham Forest Planning Committee, have been master-planned by Metropolitan Workshop. And then next up, it's the refurbishment and the extension of the 1989 T.P. Bennett-designed F.T. building on the South Bank, which is set for approval at Southwark's planning committee, despite concerns voiced by the 20th Century Society. So this is a seven-storey building, which was home to the Financial Times for 30 years, before the newspaper moved back to its former City of London offices in 2019. It is now destined to be turned into a new office campus for global advertising company, WPP. BD Architecture and Design have released designs to retrofit the building, showing an extra story and a redesign of its dark, glazed exterior. So even though it's being spared from demolition, the 20th Century Society has slammed these proposals, which they say will drastically alter the distinguished building character and appearance. And then finally, it's the future of the BFI IMAX site, which looks uncertain as Lambeth Council and TfL are set to commission a new feasibility study looking at options for turning the site into an office-led scheme. This comes only two years after £500,000 was invested into alternative proposals for the site, and despite the 20th Century Society placing the IMAX cinema on its list of top 10 modern buildings at risk of demolition. So, Sean, this has been a big week for demolition and retrofit. These are three striking buildings. Um, so you've got this like sleek brutalist office block in Walthamstow, the bold, glazed FT building in Southwark, and the iconic IMAX in Waterloo. What are your thoughts on these buildings? Are they deserving of protection, or do you think they should be replaced or retrofitted?
2: The amount of years that each of these buildings ha- have kind of existed or, or, or lived for is is crazy? Like it's not it's not much time, and already they're gonna be either revamped or or completely destroyed. I think in terms of of, of um, the kind of brutalist build, I think the problem the problem here is that any kind of sustainability organization, in in the case here, um, Acom, um, is gonna say, well, the the rating of the building is quite low. Um, and it will take substantial amount of money to get that rating up. So the best thing to do is destroy the building and start again. Um, in the case, they've said that it has a, a F rating for energy performance, and a new building could achieve a B. Um, I think the problem here is that this is always the excuse. This is the, always the reason why um, buildings will be demolished for new buildings. I mean, if we, if we generally want to be able to retrofit um, our buildings and not kind of destroy the building and, and um, build a new one, I think there needs to be methods in which we can retrofit buildings and it's more attractive for for, for um, businesses and developers because otherwise we're going to see the same, same issue. Um, and whilst they speak of... A better rating we have to kind of think of the embodied carbon the, the how much carbon um does it take to to kind of transport all of the materials over to the site um and i think it, it's really hard to 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 see how this is going to change without the, the cost of of retrofitting and upgrading the building um is lowered and i think we're, we're kind of always um seeing this i mean in terms of the, the um kind of the IMAX. I actually went to the IMAX when I was a kid. I think, I think probably like twelve years ago now. And to think that they kind of already want to to get rid of it is in such a a, a prominent location as well. Um, and they kind of speak of the revamp will now kind of um make make the space more attractive and and allow for um when people come into suburb like it's um it has some, some something that's kind of welcoming and inviting but again we really need to be pushing for innovative ways that this can be done without demolishing the building.
1: Our final story was again covered in the AJ and kicked up quite a storm on social media with a staggering response on Facebook and Twitter. It's all to do with Swedish pop sensation ABBA and their comeback tour which will see the group embark on a revolutionary set of concerts at which virtual avatars of the band will play their greatest hits. The virtual tour will be hosted inside a new 3,000 capacity venue on the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and the first images of the new East End landmark have just been released by its London-based designer, Stufish Entertainment Architects. The London and Hong Kong-based entertainment and concert specialist has drawn up proposals for a mainly timber temporary theatre on a car park site on Barbers Road next to Pudding Mill DLR station. In March 2020, the London Legacy Development Corporation gave its approval for the pop-up arena to stay on the plot for five years, the 6,710 metres squared scheme has been designed to be demountable and reusable. Currently under construction, the building is the latest addition to the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, which already features a range of sporting, educational, retail, commercial and entertainment facilities. Regular listeners to the show will remember we recently discussed proposals for a 90 metre tall sphere featuring a 21,500 capacity arena and designed by Populous. So that's for the site next to Stratford Station Um, and it's something that could receive a planning verdict this month. Uh, So Sean, what do you think of the new ABBA concert venue for the Olympic Park and can you tell our listeners about Stu Fish, the entertainment architects behind this design?
2: So Fish is a studio that creates permanent, temporary, and touring entertainment architecture. I mean, they've got some huge clients. I mean, their clients include Beyonce, Madonna, Pink Floyd, um, and the Rolling Stones. I mean, r- quite recently, they completed a set design for Beyonce and Jay-Z's On The Run um, 2 tour. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're killing it in the entertainment um Area, and they're kind of world renowned for for their for their set design. Um, in terms of the Abba concert venue, I mean, I'm quite happy that this is demountable and reusable because I, I do wonder um, the kind of Elizabeth Olympic Park with with having this Abba concert, which is kind of like this hex hexagonal kind of um, formed uh, kind of arena. Having that and then thinking of this populous dome that, that kind of looks like a massive black sphere, it, it's, it's going to look crazy. It's, just gonna, <laughs> it's literally going to start look, looking like a mashup of, of different architecture. I mean, in terms of having a, a virtual concert space, it is a very weird concept. It's an incredibly weird concept because um, what they're going to have is what they call avatars, People are gonna be going to to see a virtual a virtual um show, which I think is a very strange concept. Like going to not see the physical person, but you're going to see a virtual person. I mean, I don't know if this is gonna be the new norm. Is reusable and demountable, and that oh, that's really the saving grace for me. I mean, maybe people might say, uh, um. I'm not an ABBA fan. (laughs) I mean, uh, I do hear Dancing Queen at the karaoke sometime. Not that I go karaoke much, but (laughs) I'm sure sure the tickets will sell out.
1: We are coming up to 10 years since the Olympic Games, uh, the London Olympic Games, and the park was meant to be a huge boost to delivering the sort of housing London needs. Yet 10 years on, the housing crisis is worse than ever, and huge areas of the park are still yet to be developed, meaning there is enough space for pop-up venues like this one um why is there why is there seemingly always space for speculative commercial development but not for affordable housing when it's needed and why is this situation unfortunately really not that surprising
2: at the time it 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 kind of set out to be this this kind of massive village and it will have all these kind of housing, all of this housing which didn't seem to happen um but now I don't really know what happens there I mean I was there I think a couple of weeks ago. And it seemed quite deserted (laughs) so in a way it's uh, it makes sense that they want to place things here and and it's it's always the most random things like why do you need an ABBA like arena here why do you need a massive black dome here um and I think that just shows if you read between the lines that they're really trying to 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 get something going here um and I think they're hoping that one of these kind of speculative developments really becomes helps this site become a, a super attractive site because I, I think at the moment it it's definitely failing in a lot of areas.
1: I think also the the they're doing this now that no one would have thought about back when they were proposing it, and it's not even as though those the issues that they were trying to address then have been. Um, Solved. That, that then means you're like, okay, cool, we're in this, like, tomfoolery stage because we've, like, sorted out the housing crisis. And the frivolity of it is then even more stark if you then loop it back to the very first story where we're still talking about what the Grenfell victims and families are meant to be doing. And I think sometimes London is so big, and this is in Stratford and that's in Kensington, and they're, like, different boroughs and they're sometimes in different worlds. But this is still the very same city, and, like, it's very bizarre...
2: I think that's a yeah I think that's a like such an interesting point because on one the end of the spectrum we've got this kind of completely pointless architecture that is scattered across London that no one really sees the reason why. And then everyone kind of laughs at and like, oh why is this? Why do we need it? And it'll probably get built. <laughs> but then there's areas in London where there is a real need for for um, architects, designers to put their heads together and try and tackle a problem. Um, and it's like, how are we living in this? How is this all happening in the same city?
1: Well, to round us up, Sean, um, thank you so much for coming on The Lundown and uh, being such a great guest. If people are, and I'm sure they will be, if people are more interested about what you're up to, where should they look you up? Where can they find out more of what you're up to?
2: Um, You can find me on Instagram. My Instagram is underscore Sean shawn underscore adams underscore or follow at poor collective
1: nice and poor collective have just finished a big fun project
2: so yeah so um the people pavilion the people pavilion so that was a, a project in collaboration with beyond the box so Beyond the box was head-end competition. So the competition for young people, a between fourteen to nineteen, to design a pavilion at um, here East at the Olympic Park. Yeah, Olympic Park had just it just eaten up all of the kind of cultural activities in the city. You've been listening to the London,
1: a show from Open City, rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. OpenCity receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an OpenCity friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city.